from 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Paris tries to come for London's fintech crown, Robinhood applies for a banking charter as T-Mobile tries to get back into banking and Germans hold more gold than Fort Knox. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 317 of Fintech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS office in Devonshire Square, London. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. David Breer. How's it going? Really, really good. I'm kind of hoping this first point like cheers me up a little bit, though. I'm like, uh, I feel like asleep. Yeah. So like, it's either going to be like the best thing for me or the worst thing for me. So like, um, see how the second, like, if you suddenly don't hear me in the second half of this podcast, you're going to know why. Right? <laughs> you're going to be, it's that one beer, sleepy, snoozy yeah, exactly. sort of afternoon. It can go either way. You it know? could go either way. Or you could get really loud and aggressive. That could happen. It's very likely. <laughs> You've heard this before, right? Yes, I've, I have yeah. seen this before, yes. Uh, Alrighty, but we're not alone. We're joined by some incredible guests this week. Uh, making uh, their new show debut, we have uh, Hiroki. I'm not going to try and say your last name. Takeuchi. Thank you, Hiroki, the CEO of GoCardless. How are you doing, sir? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. We, we really appreciate you coming along. Uh, Solange Dive Chamberlain, have I said that right? Just about, yeah. So, Steve Chamberlain. Damn it. I went for it and it went wrong. Damn it. Uh, You're head of commercial banking strategy at LPG. Are you well? It correct, yeah. I do a couple of other things, but that that's the exciting bit. And you don't want to be like that person with the title that has and, and, and. Yeah, my job a... title doesn't quite fit on the line yet. So there, <laughs> yeah, there's some rebranding coming, so that, that works very well. But yeah, <laughs> delighted to be here. I mean, as long as you get three salaries with three job titles. No, it doesn't. Then it's, uh, <laughs> you haven't, yeah, it's not worked like that in corporates. Dang. There's the it's fintech just increase in productivity rather than. <laughs> oh, dang it. Uh, we're joined by Chris Martin, uh, who is co-founder and CPO at Button, and of course, formerly of Venmo. How are you doing, Chris? Very well. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. No, thank you for being on. And last but not least, making a welcome return is Mr. Niall Cameron, who's Global Head of Corporate and Institutional Digital at HSBC. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm very uh, surprised you invited me back after last time, but very grateful. So I that's mean, really good. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a little bit chaotic. We was touch and go there for a while. We <laughs> <laughs> but, we, you know, we thought, why not? We'll take the risk. Uh, alrighty, let's get started. Uh, the first story actually comes from, uh, it's an opinion piece uh, from Yahoo Finance and uh, Station F, um, France's FU to London's fintech hub. Um, Station F is a 250 million euro statement of France's tech ambitions. And apparently Britain should be worried, according to Yahoo Finance. Opened in June 2017, Station F is the world's largest startup incubator. Uh, it's a 34,000 square meter former train depot, um, and it's home to more than a thousand startups, as well as providing a focal point for the French tech scene. It also acts as a statement of ambition. France wants to become the number one country for tech in Europe. Um, and could Brexit be playing in here? Before we get to our guests, uh, we spoke to Oscar Williams Group, the author of the piece, to get his key takeaways on the significance of all of this investment in Parisian tech. Let's hear from him now. I've just come back from Paris, where I've spent the week for Paris Blockchain Week. And one of my key takeaways is just how impressive the French tech scene is over there. Now, Paris has perhaps been overlooked as a European tech hub in past years, partly due to the success of London and Berlin, as well as the fact that a lot of the businesses within Paris, sorry, within France, typically focus just on the local market. But there are signs that that is changing now. And perhaps the biggest sign is Station F. 
the 250 million euro incubator for startups. It's the biggest incubator in the world and it was where Paris Blockchain Week was held. While I visited there, I was just really struck by the scale of the ambition of the place and of Paris. The digital minister, Cedric O, closed the conference and he made it pretty explicit that he wants to see Paris become not just a tech hub, but also to overtake the UK and become the biggest uh, tech hub in Europe. As part of that, they've introduced things like the French tech visa, which explicitly makes it easy to bring overseas talent into the country. And Macron has repeatedly said that he wants France to become a start-up nation. Now, obviously, it's early days. London still has around double the number of funded startups as Paris. But just the fact that Paris are setting out, the, front, the French are setting out their stall so clearly is a sign that London can't rest on its laurels. We have competition out there for startup talent, for international tech talent. And if we're not careful, we could lose our place as the number one tech hub in Europe for fintech and beyond. All right, that's our Oscar's thoughts. But what do our fintechs in the room think about that? Hiroki, are you thinking London's lost it? Is it gone? Um, I, I don't know. I don't see it that way. Um, I think it, so. We we opened up an office in in Paris last year, um, and we've been you know active in that market for a while now. So we've we've been there a bunch of times over the last few years, um, and and it, you you can definitely feel it. Right, it's changed a lot. It's uh, growing really quickly, and in in many ways, Paris feels very similar to how London felt maybe five years ago. Um, and but then if you look at what London felt like. Eight years ago, nine years ago, when we first started, you know, everything's growing a lot, right? So I, I don't think it's necessarily a winner takes all situation here. Um, and clearly, you know, the stuff we're doing with Brexit makes things complicated. And I'm pretty sure we've shot ourselves in the foot a little bit, but, um, <laughs> but I, I don't think it's going to be the end of one and the, the rise of the other. I think, you know, there will be tech hubs all around the world. That's pretty interesting. And, and I guess, um, a, a view uh, hopefully ac- echoed by many, but certainly I feel a sense of foreboding doom as we approached this never-ending uncertainty. Chris, you view it now, I guess, from, from a home further away. Um, do you, how do you view it with a, with a little bit more distance uh, from across the pond? Yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting coming back. So I, I moved to New York uh, eight years ago now, and at the time, the London tech scene was like really just starting. There was Tech Hub on Old Street Roundabout, and that was about it. And there was Silicon Soho, which were a bunch of parties uh, in Soho during the summer. And then I moved to New York and there was this much more developed scene. And I, I see it in a very similar way to um, your point, which is New York's developed and London's developed. And I spent today going and meeting with five of the biggest fintech folks here. And there is incredible stuff happening here today that just wasn't happening seven or eight years ago, the funding environment, the innovation environment. And, you know, hopefully it's Paris's turn. And I don't think it's a zero sum game. Like I think there's opportunity for innovation, whether in the same field or different fields to grow uh, all over the place. It's interesting. Every time I talk to techies, um, the view that it's not a zero-sum game seems to come up. So let's ask some um, some some bankers. Is it a zero-sum game? Do you think, Solange, or do you really think there's opportunity here? Rising tide lifts all. So I'm slightly conflicted because I, I was kind of born and grew up in Paris, <laughs> um, and I and then I moved to London, studied here, and my my entire working life has been here. Although some back and forth to Paris. Look. I think you'd hope it's more than a zero-sum game. There's a lot happening. 
in, I think it's important to remember also, you know, there are different countries, the dynamics are different, the social environment are, is different, there's pros and cons. I mean, France and Paris has changed and Macron's done a number of things. The banks and the insurers in France have also changed and their approach is different, which is important, I guess, to the fintech scene. Um, you know, we have Brexit here. Um, they've had protests every Saturday in Paris for 25 or 26 weeks, I think. So I don't think it's kind of like I mean, zero like, or hero or yeah. perfect world in either case. Yeah. I mean, like French people know how to protest, right? I think that's like, it's like a, <laughs> ours are queuing people just protesting, isn't it? We're but, pretty good at it. it we have a pretty competing police force as well who's pretty good at kind true. of managing protests. Um, and, and the name actually is just a historical, it's slightly more poetic than your interference. It was, a, the building was called Alfresine mm-hmm. and so they took the first letter. Ah. So it's a nod to the place rather than... I mean, I think it's the worst name ever. Like, Station F, it just sounds awful to me. Like, it's yeah. like, you know... It's apocalyptic. Yeah, no, it almost, I, yeah, it feels like it's like 1984 or something, you know, something out of that, right? Well, no, I, I think it's almost like you're approaching fucked. Like, it's like <laughs> station fucked. Like, it's like, so for, <laughs> for me, think, I'm like... Dave, you think going forward is actually quite clever because when they expand, they can go to the station G. And like, all the way through <laughs> so this. So it's, yeah. it's got a lot of room for uh, development. Yeah, yeah, it's room for the alphabet. I, like, seriously, I think it's I think it's really interesting. There's so many places that are queuing up to try and, you know, steal the crown from from London. And like you say, we're sort of, you know, allowing that by, you know, Brexit and whatnot and everything that's kind of going on. But, you know, I think the ecosystem isn't just made by uh, kind of these types of accelerators. We need to see wholesale improvements in the amount of investment that's going in, capital that's actually going in via, uh, you know, French fintechs. And we're not, I don't think we're seeing that yet, but maybe this is the type of thing that lays down the foundation for it. But I think to your point, though, it's, this is what we sort of saw in, you know, level 39 in 2012 in the UK, right? You know, we saw these things kind of coming through and these types of changes have led to the, uh, you know, the ecosystem that we've seen here today. You know, proximity to finance is probably one of the most important things for fintech. I mean, and I think that it's very hard for fintech to grow up in an area where there's no big financial companies. I, I disagree with that. Well, <laughs> I think well, like I, I give, I'll give the counter, but yeah. I think that the reality is that proximity to knowing what's going on is really important. Now, the other side of it, though, which we're seeing is the crowding out effect, because as all the big financial institutions start to build their businesses and start to hire developers and hire, hire AI and you know, hire <laughs> UX people, that is crowding out some of the labor and some of the available staff. And I think so I think there is an opportunity for fintech areas to grow away from the big financial areas because of the staff issue but i think that that proximity is is quite powerful and it's not i don't think it's really surprising that the big fintech hubs are coming up in new york and london paris is a big financial center and has also been a very important center for the more technical side of finance particularly the derivative market and some of the the more technical pieces of finance so i'm not surprised no i mean the, the reason I, I kind of interjected I, I i don't believe that you need to be near the banks or near financial services hubs to create successful fintech companies. I think that for me, it's, 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 an, it's a coincidence, an important coincidence, but, you know, really, I think it's the question, the question of p- the people that were working in these financial services organizations, working in banks, but also interested in tech. And is that crossover of, of talent that created, you know, fintech as a thing in London. I, that, that, that's my strong view, anyway. So you know, we could have easily started go cardless, like you know, 
in Paris or in Dublin or in the, in London. Like, you know, I, I don't think it was the fact that we were close to the banks that really mattered. Um, but I do, I do take your point. Like, you know, there is a lot of financial services expertise in London and it's the combination of that expertise with, you know, the, the, the more technical expertise that is really important. I but, it, uh, you know, that, that, that talent exists not just in London, right? It, yeah. it, it exists all around the world. I think we, I think we do have a unique level of technology talent, creative talent here. I think, I think it's interesting as well, the difference between B2C and B2B, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think in the B2B sense, I think it's like nettles and dock leaves, you know, when they're like, you find them close to one another because the B2B players from a fintech perspective are arguably solving problems for big financial services organizations. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a category of B2B, right? Like, for example, GoCardless, we, we don't sell to the banks at all. So, yeah. you know, yeah, if, you're, if your customers are financial services organizations, then Obviously, being close to the customer is always important. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of both B2B and B2C uh, fintech companies that are serving, you know, uh, a much wider audience. So i got to move us on, but I think um, it's going to be one to keep watching. Uh, definitely policy has been a, a, a key strategic advantage for the UK for quite some time. And um, France is definitely making statements of intent. We shall come back to this one, I'm sure. But the next story um, is from Business Insider. And this is the prepaid card report. Uh, what issuers can do to win market share in a period of regulation and competition. So apparently, there were 10.7 billion prepaid card transactions worth $290 billion in 2016, according to the Federal Reserve. And the Business Insider Intelligence Report expects that to grow to $396 billion by 2022. Uh, the prepaid has historically been filled with incumbents like Green Dot, but new players like Apple, Amazon, and of course Venmo um, are trying to gain share, which is pushing large prepaid firms to merge or acquire one another to grow. Um, the prepaid ecosystem is shifting focus from low income to underbanked customers towards millennials and higher income adults and targeting younger consumers. So um, we've seen this model, especially in the UK, where it's prepaid card first and then launch from there into something else. Um, are we going to see more of this? Has prepaid kind of become something much bigger than it was, do we think? Well, Apple have definitely done it, right? Yeah. Prepaid cards into a credit card with Marcus, so, um, with uh, Goldman Sachs, rather. So, like, you know, this is kind of happening in that space, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, it's interesting that, you know, the U.S. market is a lot uh, a lot different, really good English there, David, well done, <laughs> uh, than, uh, than over here. So, you know, maybe you're a much better place than us to uh, comment on this one. Yeah, uh, so we're both ahead and behind here. Um, so the, the way that spending happens in the US is definitely different. Far more credit cards. Credit cards are dominated by rewards. Rewards has been a big component of what makes it hard to roll out prepaid cards in the US. Mm -hmm. So whether you're an Acorns, whether you're a Venmo, whether you're anyone else, um, the question is how do you get front of wallet for a prepaid card um, when people like JP Morgan Chase are so willing to lose literally tens to hundreds of millions of dollars annually on being underwater on these like crazy rewards programs. Um, that said, just like every challenger bank has kind of started down that prepaid to bank to kind of broader financial products roadmap in the UK, um, we're now starting to see people going beginning down that path in the US. So yeah, the, the big techs are doing on. it, which is which is super interesting, as well as the fintech. So it's kind of different part. Banks are being attacked from different parts of anyone of, with a of, wallet. Yeah, indeed. Well, and it, and it seems like there's a bit of a flurry of people 
creating those technology stacks to allow that to happen. So you've got the marketers, the Q2s of the world who uh, actually make it really easy for people to kind of get to market in the same way as, uh, you know, the the sort of PPS and GPS of the world over here are, yeah. are, are doing to allow people just to jump into the market without actually having to have all of the regulatory burden as I well. I think that ability to bootstrap and get something in the hands of th- customers quickly, you know, for... Uh, tens if not low hundreds of thousands of dollars rather than tens of millions to launch a product that that it historically took is an advantage uh, for everybody. Um, I think it really isn't just applicable to the world of startups. Big techs can use it, but also um, banks themselves can use it. In fact, we'll probably see many more do things like that. And that ability to get those quick feedback loops, I think, is is as crucial for banks as it is for, for anybody. I, I, I do wonder if like consumers actually know the difference though to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Like we get all frothy about it because we're in the industry, but it's like actually to, does a customer know the difference really between a prepaid card and a current account if they're being given it? No, I don't think so. And if it's solving a problem for them, right? I mean, I guess um, historically the argument was um, use this card and you'll get these rewards, but you get a kind of a really crappy experience and that's the price to pay for getting all of these rewards. But actually there's a different value case you can make, which is this is just so easy to use. Yeah, you don't get the rewards, but you're going to kind of want to use it just because setting up a new payee or dealing with the day-to-day transactions, it just feels better. And that's a really intangible and hard thing to measure, whereas measuring the, I put this many rewards, therefore I got this many customers, it looks better on a spreadsheet. Can we move towards like experience-driving user activation and retention more and more and away from that traditional like buying customers? There's, there's, there's another angle here, I think, which is if you take it forward and you have some of the sort of the big-name brands um, with prepaid cards... Where the customer is basically spending money, you know, whether it's their Vodafone bill or their, um, you know, their bill at the the gas station or whatever, they're paying on a regular basis. This can effectively turn into supply chain finance for those companies. Mm -hmm. So if the customer is actually putting money on those cards on a regular basis, knowing that they're going to be spending down on that card and others, and they're getting some form of rewards or some cash back or some credits or whatever. It's effectively a supply chain's finance model. And, and what, what you're seeing is actually the consumer, the individual consumer is now pro- providing supply chain finance to the, the big name company that they're buy, buying. And that's actually almost introducing a new business model. Um, it's not really something we've really thought about mm. before because supply chain finance has always been the other way. It's the, it's the big company that's, got, that's supplying finance to their chain. Mm-hmm. This is actually the individual supplying money yeah. effectively supply chain finance to their 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 regular their regular retailers pre-buying fuel pre-buying pre-buying, fuel, pre, pre, pre-buying. and i think this concept is something that's got a lot of power because it also means that those those uh, uh, customers are much less likely to switch provider you know if they've got a very uh, loyal situation with their card holder and they're getting rebates and cash back and they're going to be much much less attuned to switch so that that reduces marketing costs reduces switching costs uh, it's a very interesting concept. This would be happening here for vulnerable customers who like that sense of control that prepaying can give them, and not being sort of stuck with a bill when there was no money left in the account. Um, but there is a real issue around zero balancing in prepaid and how you manage that experience. But would you do you think Solange will see more of this? So I think what's really interesting is the kind of customer behaviours and changes, right? Um, and I, I don't know much about the US market, but in the UK, certainly five years ago, people had a debit card, a credit card, you know. It's the same bank or maybe different banks, right? You talk to people now, they have a card they use when they travel. 
I mean, I have kids and so, you know, it's not a big example, but like, oh, I have a nanny. I got her essentially a prepaid card, right? I don't want to share my credit history with her. I know where she spends, you know, I, I know where she's been and how she spends the money. I can control it. It's really easy. Um, my kids are a bit young, but, you know, I know people who use it for their kids. Um, we, we had the, you know, we went on holiday with some friends and one of us put the prepaid card and we just put money onto it and then we used it to do the shopping. So it is impacting quite profoundly the way people use it. I think businesses as well, you know, probably more at the BBUSME end. Um, it's an easier, it's a completely different way. Instead of using a current account and the wrapper that goes around that and some of the permissioning around that for businesses, you can suddenly give people cards, you can, you know, have expense management topics. I think it will drive customer behavior. The next question is, as people have more cards for different things, whether it's to buy you fuel or other, where does aggregation come in, right? Because then it becomes quite difficult. Yeah. If you're not doing for the lower income or for the budgeting, but you have 10 different cards for 10 different things, you know, whether it's your Starbucks card that you kind of prepay to your point or your card you use for FX, it's going to keep getting harder to keep track. Interest rates are relevant here as well. Because if interest rates stay really, really low, the concept of a prepaid card is really good because you're not giving up anything. Mm-hmm. But if, but if interest rates went up, obviously, then the concept of prepaid cards starts to, to erode a bit. Because you want to hold those balances. Because you want to get, yeah, you don't want to be funding somebody else when you can actually get the interest yourself. But in a low interest rate environment, I think prepaid cards could grow quite rapidly. <laughs> Do you think the consumer thinks about that? I don't think, I don't think so much at this moment, but I think if the, if the rewards concept and the cashback concept starts to get more hold, i.e. the supply chain finance concept gets hold, yes, I think they will. They'll say, they will look at it economically and say, Hold on a sec. I'm getting I'm getting fifty fifty pounds back for this a thousand pound credit, and if I keep it in the in the bank at interest rates of half a percent or one percent, I'm getting. I'd gotten fifty bucks anyway. That's where the aggregator exactly. comes in, right? Because yeah. if you see it, then you can much more dynamically. But also, also the bank apps now. They I mean they're all going down the same route, which is telling you your spend and categorizing your spend, giving you information back, and. The more that that becomes, people realize how they're spending, and they realize actually they're probably spending in a very formatted pattern mm-hmm. and actually their their patterns are repeating and repeating and repeating so it does drive the, the the mental ability for people to say well i might as well put some credit on this because i'm getting rewards or cash bank i think it's a really interesting point about like it's the transient nature of these things right the going on holiday the giving the kids access to some funds the the nanny the whatever type thing but being able to stand back from all of that and see that is you know that's kind of that's a service that banking isn't providing right now but actually being able to do that i think is a real interest and people are using prepaid as just like shorthand for like mitigating risk um and really actually if you could create all of those things and have them in a in a current account where you can provision a card and give it to the nanny and you can see that as a sub account on the thing that you're doing then you wouldn't have to do that right you would get there hopefully i've got to move us on uh, we're up against this one of time i feel like this conversation could run and run but i gotta move us to the next story it comes from Finextra. uh n26 are going to open a security focused tech center in vienna um but will focus on using ai to detect fraudulent transactions. Uh, In October, of course, a German newspaper reported customer complaints about fraudulent transactions and deficiency in customer communications. The issue was probed by watchdog Barfin, which allegedly uncovered numerous shortcomings in staffing, outsourced task management, and engineering. Now, N26 says they're going to hire a bunch of software engineers, product managers, and IT specialists for its new Vienna Center, which will open in the autumn with a focus on developing AI-based systems for detection of fraudulent transactions. 
actions. Uh, and the team will develop N26 real-time risk scoring capabilities, verification of card payments, and so on. And recruiting is starting immediately. A bit of proactivity here, maybe, or um, reacting after the regulator came in? I mean, definitely reacting after the regulator <laughs> coming in. But like, it's sad to start seeing like fintech start using you know acronyms like AI as a defense mechanism in the yeah. same way as some of the big banks do to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're going to use AI to fix this. I'm like, that doesn't make... Yeah, I'm like... I'm not sure. I'm not sure who they're impressing with that. Do you know what I, mean? <laughs> like, I think it's interesting that N26. There were, uh, you know, they they're one of the few ones who I think act a little bit more uh, strategically in terms of ge- uh, geography. You know, mm-hmm. like actually they are. Uh, they've kind of scooped up early adopters in so many different geographies that they're doing this in Vienna doesn't seem like a big deal to them. Whereas like you know, Monzo opening something in Vienna would be like a massive big deal. Mm-hmm. And well, N26 have already got a presence there. So this is not so much of a, a, mm-hmm. a big kind of whoop for it. Um, I do think with those guys and obviously with all the stuff that's been, you know, every couple of days we have Revolut or N26 in the news right now for, uh, you know, regulatory anomaly stuff that's kind of going on. And I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, but you kind of have to see headlines for these guys to do this stuff to try and just defend themselves a little. Growing bit. pains are hard, right? I guess it's it's challenging. I mean, uh, w- really interesting that Barfin's feedback was um, shortcomings in staffing, um, and the answer to which is yes, we're going to hire people, but also here's this magical AI. But I do ha- we have seen for a long time that startups have been better users of um, data driven decision making and data driven rules based creating and other techniques that allow you to identify less false positives and create less user friction um, and then but, there's the Amazon I, model which is just like authorize all of the transactions and manage the risk on the back end but but, but, I, but I think you only start calling it AI it's like saying we're going to use magic do you mean mm-hmm. like you don't need to call it AI like it's a uh, because it covers such a broad spectrum of all of these different types of things that actually you're just saying it's confusing and go away basically you know? <laughs> yeah I really agree with it. do you gents have any thoughts uh we opened an office last month. We didn't issue a press release. Uh, like it's it's clearly a, a a reactive thing. But you know, to be fair to them, they just got a little bit caught behind by their own success in an industry where that's not acceptable. Uh, and so they're trying to come back from a, a hot spot. Hmm. And it, it's probably not going to be the last time we see that as well, right? You know, the uh, the challenger banks particularly are growing so quickly. Hundred uh, percent. And actually, like growing their operations and their processes and everything that goes with it as quickly yeah. is pretty hard, right? And between you, me, and 300,000 listeners, like we had a lot of these challenges at Venmo in the early days. Like you don't you don't wake up as five people and think, hey, maybe we're going to have a million customers in a few months. Mm-hmm. You think maybe we're going to have 5,000 instead of 4,000. And then one day you have 100,000, you have a billion dollars in the bank and you're like, Shit, we're like not quite ready for all of these things. <laughs> yeah. let's, uh, let's let's do some AI. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think there's something interesting about the starting point of uh, an engineering-led solution that is built on a cloud-native infrastructure that doesn't start at now. I've got to think about how I integrate this to the seven thousand systems I've got. Like having the capacity to be able to go ah, what are the best off-the-shelf tools that somebody else can use, and how quickly can I solve this? That's that's an interesting place to be. I think that no one is immune, right? I mean, they've, you know, put intent to one side because I don't think that this conversation, there's always going to be unintended consequences that you can't foresee whatever you set up with and whatever you're trying to do. I think for me, whether it's a fintech or a bank, it's great to have innovation that makes things better and to try and solve problems differently. Um, so I, I hope that even if there's growing pains, you don't <laughs> completely put things to one side and forget it. Where I'm a little bit puzzled is, you know, some of the issue they had was um, 
someone couldn't get hold of someone, right? I mean, at some point, if you're going to be a bank, you want to be able to speak to somebody uh, and you need some people, right? I mean, I'm all for AI or whatever we call it to help the person have the conversation. Yeah. And oh. so you need to be careful what problems you're trying to solve and, and what's the solution versus an enabler. I completely agree, although I have spent a long time battling um, internal voice recording systems and IVRs, trying to, where's the speak to a person button? Um, definitely got to find. Zero, 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 zero. Yeah, yeah. Just keep hammering buttons until they get through to a person. Uh, all right, next story comes from AltFi. Uh, turning the tide on business registrations. Tide are launching a company formation in UK banking first. Uh, tide across the Challenger Bank in the UK with more than 60,000 registered small businesses um, are allowing customers to electronically register new businesses with Companies House. Um, once the feature launches um, in 2020, it could help Tide streamline the process of setting up a business and a bank account all in one process. Tide is not currently registered as a formation agent with Companies House, but it would be the first UK banking provider to do so. It comes as part of CEO Oliver Prill's plan to position Tide as the one-stop shop for all things business. Um, is this a big differentiator on the small business side? I mean, David, thinking back to our early days, um, pressing one button and having it all done would be quite nice. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to kind of think back on what order you do this stuff in to a certain yeah. degree. You know, I mean, I, I kind of think like your bank account is down the line rather than like, you know, shareholder agreements and whatnot, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, so I, I, it would be super interesting that they're trying to sort of push further and further and further up that value chain where you can essentially press bomb button and four minutes later have the company registered and everything there and a bank account with it. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I, I think they've already got a pretty good stranglehold right now. You know, tied uh, what are they, two in every 10 accounts being opened, which is just amazing. So uh, one thing I would be like, you know, obviously the remedies fund that's kind of come through with RBS. I'd really like anybody who's doing something that's spending remedies money to tell us that this, you know, this was the this thing. was the remedies yeah. money. It's like this was remedies money, and it's like, oh, okay, this that's is the, what you're doing. Yeah, right? yeah so, that transparency, yeah, is, is um, it's definitely interesting. Uh, it seems like an interesting move, though, but it's probably more like a branding thing than a product thing, right? So. You know, being able to set up a company is is frankly not that hard, no, right? No. Um, and it's probably not going to stop anyone from setting up a business if they're really serious about it. Um, however, you know, it's very similar to what Stripe have done with Atlas, right? It's and gonna, yeah. I think Atlas has been a great move for, for Stripe, right? <laughs> so, um, so I can see you there looking up on the computer. Mm -hmm. um, the um, and and you know. I think that goes a long way towards positioning Tide as, you know, the, the champion of the startup, making it really easy to get set up as a business, not just from a you know, nuts and bolts perspective, but just on a broader level. And that, that, that for me, feels like the move here, right? I think it's, it's not just forming the company that Stripe Atlas does. It's things like templates for common legal needs after formations, uh, IRS employee identification numbers, registered agent services renewed annually, signed documents to establish company rules, founder owners. Ownership, IP ownership. So it's, it's a bigger, broader package of stuff that generally rumbles on for months and months, but kind of just takes some of the admin out of that that's typically... Um, I mean, you know, we I spend quite a lot of time in the space and you can figure out what's business banking or SME, but I, I mean, the trend that we, you know, you can observe is essentially, can you put in one place all your middle and back office that you need when you run a business so you can just run the business? And you know, this is interesting. I mean, Amazon's doing, you know, company in a box type stuff because Amazon has a trading place. And if you've got everything set up, so, you know, registering a company's house, for me, the interest of the story is everything else, right? You've got, you've got a few startup actually. 
uh, in the UK, there's a couple who more specifically saying, okay, I'll set up everything you need if you want to be like a buy-to-let person, right? So I'll set up the SPV. Here's the kind of legal agreements you have uh, to speed it up and to reduce the cost of setting things up. So I think it's a broader trend. I don't know what the adoption will be like and how long it will take and if you can make any money out of it. But it's certainly interesting that it's a big Big step in that direction. Well, and, I, and I wonder if it's just, the, like I say, moving slightly up the value chain. But I know people like Santander definitely use companies' house registrations as outbound for, uh, you know, approaching people for uh, for business accounts. So essentially, if that stems that for other competitors, then maybe this is just smart from time to, you know, move further up that value chain and get... Uh, uh, you know, more out of the 10 rather. As soon as you're thinking about starting a company, boom, here, and here's the account too. I'm, I'm kind of getting you while you're young. Um, yeah, it's turning that outbound model into an inbound model, right? Yeah. yeah, it's an interesting model. Any other thoughts on this one? I love this so much. I think Stripe should buy them and make it part of Atlas. Anything that makes starting companies entrepreneurship easier, I think is not just good for technology. It's good for the world. It's good for um, society. The interesting thing, I think, is how does that play with the accountant's angle, right? Mm. Because you see a lot of um, different ways the space can evolve around the kind of smaller businesses and who gets to be at the center. Mm. And and that's kind of straying away from competing just with the banking or finance providers with a different kind of people who have a very different type of model for establishing relationships. You've got this interesting problem with hypergrowth companies as well. There's this certain point in which the tools that you used when you were 10 people definitely don't work when you're 150 people. And then you have like this tool migration period and then the 150 people to 1,000 people and beyond. You've got these whole, like you've got these points in the journey of a hypergrowth company. And I don't think anybody's plotted that journey and really been on it and thought about, you know, what does uh, what does that hypergrowth company need when they go into a new market? What's the treasury management service in a box that, you know, would be ready for a corporate, but that you can scale all the way back down? I think that's a, an interesting... I'm, I'm not sure that will ever work, though, because, you know, the, 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 the type of company, the type of service you need to set up to serve a 1,000-person company is so different from, you know, the SME that's just getting started, mm-hmm. that you, you can't really feasibly build a business that runs all of those services together. So you kind of have to choose, right? Are you focused on SME? Are you focused on corporate? And, you know, I, I think the good move here by Tide is that they're very clearly focused on, on the SME, right? So obviously some of those SMEs that set up through this new service will go on to hyper growth. But it's going to be a small percentage, and you know, that's not really their target market. I, I broadly agree, but I think what I was suggesting is that is there a four, five, ten-year growth pattern here? As as those companies grow, does Tide lose those businesses, yes, or do they, they start? Will. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's fine. That, that, I think that, that that's kind of that's the point, right? Lots and and I agree, but look, I think it, it, it can be size, it can be simple or complex. I, I think jury's out. Yeah. From my perspective, uh, where that cutoff is, right? Yeah. Is it two million turnover? Is it five oh, million yeah, turnover? Sure, is it yeah. completely unrelated to turnover? Yeah. And is it related to people? Mm-hmm. Is it you know? Can you be like a really big turnover business, but be super simple? And and so I don't think the whole thinking around how do you segment and think about that customer base. I think we're pretty early on still. I think you have the other issue. Sorry, David. The other issue I think is always that comes out here is how many platforms can there be? Mm-hmm. You know, if everybody's going to do a platform play then which are the winning platforms? And and it's it's just not viable that everybody is going to succeed as a, as a platform. Mm-hmm. And, and there's so many different angles on this and so many different people could be a platform. Uh, and there's only going to be a small number yeah. because there only ever is a small number. So I think this is one of the, the, key, the key issues when you look at these types of business models is, yes, it makes sense conceptually, but how are they all going to survive as platforms? Yeah. I think, um, I think if you've got the answer for like, 
low complexity, high revenue, please tell me. That would be amazing. <laughs> uh, like, I, I wonder if um, with Tide, though, it's just like the um, sort of part of the, the evolution that they're in. You know, the beachhead that they've chosen is going for smaller level SMEs with limited le uh, amounts of complexity because it's actually the easiest place to kind of start in terms of creating capability. And I, and I do wonder whether they'll, and then they've definitely started to try and attempt to do this, where they're doing, uh, you know, up to 50 sub accounts for m more complex businesses. And they're, you know, dabbling more and more into uh, not just accountancy integration, but actually accountancy actually into Tide. So I wonder if they're attempting to sort of grow with the businesses that they're serving, which mm -hmm. will be really interesting to, mm -hmm. as you say, like, where do they stop? Yeah, I think Solange's point is exactly right. It's like, where's the cutoff? Yeah. Right, like, there, will, there will definitely be what? some cutoff, but, you know, uh, you know, is Tide going to serve a 2100 company? Probably, Probably never. Probably not, yeah. Right, but, you know, there is, so where's the cutoff? Is, is That's a really interesting question. Yeah. We're going to watch this one for sure, um, and we've got to get to our sponsor reel, so we'll be back very, very shortly. This deal sets up that this economy okay, is. We need to get down yeah. to business. Yeah. 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 Clearly, the pressure is beginning. Business investment. Jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Calling all fintechs, banks, developers. Are you looking at ways to use new open APIs to create the next financial app? Are you looking to break into new markets, the USA in particular? Finastra and Microsoft are hosting the Fusion One Developer Conference in London on the 21st and 22nd of May 2019, down at Tobacco Dock. Join this free open finance developer conference to upskill in open APIs Understand how you can tap into Finastra's 8,000-strong client base with your apps and get hands-on technical walkthroughs with the platform and API experts. Register your place at Fusion One today online at fusionone.cloud. Join the open banking revolution, because, after all, we're all innovators. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. At 11FS, we specialize in using the jobs-to-be-done methodology to identify underserved areas of financial services. Uh, we've just released an in-depth research report applying jobs-to-be-done thinking to the world of personal finance management uh, with 13 video customer interviews and over 1,000 uh, results from our customer surveys. We ask questions like, how are current fintechs meeting customer needs? And what does the future of the personal finance management market look like? Discover the answers to this and much more. You can grab your free copy at bit.ly forward slash JTBD PFM. So if you've got your phone with you right now, you're commuting, just hit bit.ly forward slash JTBD PFM and do it because that's really hard to say and I'd really, really appreciate it. Alrighty, let's get on with the show. Alrighty, story comes from Frenextra, and this is about Stripe's new strong customer authentication acquisition. Stripe have bought a company called TouchTech ahead of new EU online authentication rules. From September, strong customer authentication, or SCA, under uh, the PSD2 regulation will mean that European shoppers have to authenticate online payments of over 30 euros with one of the two following. Something they know, like a password, something they are, fingerprint face, or something they have, like their phone. 
Uh, to meet the rules, merchants will have to upgrade their payment setup. Uh, when similar changes were made in India, there was a 25% drop in sales overnight. Uh, to help retailers prepare for the change, Stripe have introduced a payments uh, intent API that lets businesses design their own SCA-ready payment forms and accept the best authentication methods through a single authentication. In addition, Stripe created pre-built payment page for SCA that merchants can integrate with a few lines of code. And most recently, they bought TouchTech Payments a software company that provides SCA-ready authentication technology and counts the likes of N26 and TransferWise among its users. We actually released an insight show all about SCA last Friday, um, featuring views from Stripe's product manager, Oliver Godement, who told us more about their plans. And check that out now. Go, go back to Fintech Insider in iTunes or whatever your podcast client is. Check it out. Uh, all right. What do we think about strong customer authentication? Are we going to see big dropout uh, from merchant portals all over the world? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. It's definitely something that a lot of merchants around the world are thinking a lot about. Um, and you know, this this will be it will it will have a big impact either way. Um, but you know, it's it's a tricky area because you're you're kind of fundamentally you're trading off convenience and speed for you know security. Uh, and you, in getting that balance right is always really difficult. Um, I think the, the the slightly scary thing is when the regulators are the ones that drive it. Then you know, oftentimes you know they they can be kind of taking a hammer to a nail, so to speak, um, and they don't necessarily recommend the best solutions. Um, but you know, my sense is that there's there'll probably be a big impact initially until they figure out how to optimize it and, and get it right. Uh, but this, this I think, is a really interesting move by Stripe. I mean, those guys are, are phenomenal. Uh, I have a huge amount of admiration and, and respect for them. And uh, they, they've got a really great team. Um, and they generally have a mentality of, you know, we can build it ourselves. Um, so, you know, they don't make a huge number of acquisitions. And it's, it's quite interesting that they've made this one. To, to do that must be, you know, must, must say something about the company they've acquired. But, of course, um, they acquired a Dublin-based company. And, of course, the Collison brothers have some heritage there as well. So, um, definitely, um, there's the Dublin connection. What? What I find interesting as well is, of course, Adyen have done similar stuff, The one of the other major payments processes, and it feels like these companies are really getting out in front of this. I haven't seen this from some of the traditional merchant acquirers as hit my radar. Now, maybe I'm not looking at in the right places, um, but that's super interesting because we always had 3D secure and verified by Visa and that sort of stuff. So there is some element of things that can be reused from a customer experience standpoint, um, but it, there's a big impact on the merchant side. But is there an impact on the bank, uh, bank side and the consumer? side do we think i think that there's this is going to be a major battleground in the next few years and and whether you know it's coming it's coming from the regulatory side now but i think it was coming from a security side and the cyber side anyway the the need is going to be very simple you need to be able to have multi-factor authentication without the customer knowing it's happening so effectively the need to, it, you the gates that you have to go through on factoring is a problem so if you go I do this, then I go through the next hurdle, then I do this, I go through the next hurdle. That's a bad customer experience. So what you need to have is a situation where that, that multi-factor checking is happening, but the customer just feels they're doing one thing. It's so if you take a sim yeah. sim sim simple example, you have your, your fingerprint on your phone, on uh, your, the, your phone is taking a face ID, and they're checking your GPS, and they're checking URL, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly this is all happening at the same time. So the customer feels they're doing one thing, but actually there's three, four, five things happening simultaneously, and that's and that gives you the security you need. There was um of course card not present fraud was by 
far the number one cause of um, fraud in Europe on, on card transactions. And this is you know, card present being I've got my chip and pin card, I've made a transaction at a point of sale. Um, but online, I just had to type the numbers in. So fraud was was much, much higher. I guess this is designed to really address that. But we have seen good examples and both Stripe and Agin have put out sort of really detailed blog posts and explanations of like how you can make this experience really, really slick. But they're sort of somewhat reliant on the bank side to be able to have that uh, enabling uh, kind of experience because if i'm using uh, i think monzo installing for quite some time have had even with verified by visa if i go and buy and make a purchase online and it comes up as risky boom i get a push notification i authenticate it directly through the app one tap of my finger and it's done and actually that's so seamless and flawless that it, to your point Niall, it, it almost doesn't feel like an inconvenience it feels a bit it's more not secure. intrusive is it it no. just it feels na- it's like a natural flow of something that's that's happening that you're doing but you also feel more secure. Yeah. I, I think the you know the innovation here is like, you know, these this type of fraud has been a business decision for a long time. You know, to your point, this is a an exercise in do you make it hard for people to get into this stuff or do you accept slightly more fraud because mm-hmm. actually your onboarding process, your mm-hmm. you know, your login process is simpler. Um so if we're you know we're gonna suddenly start finding, you know, two FA processes that don't suck, it sounds good to me. Um, but I, I do wonder if like this is going to be something that moves more and more towards like operating system integration, if I'm honest with you. You know, mm. the fact that, you know, Apple are doing, uh, you know, SMS codes already auto pre-filled into things, like they're taking all of that friction out of the, these pieces. I wonder if it's something that they could look to, to move yeah, more absolutely. and more into. I think it's a big opportunity, I think, for the, for the, not just the operating systems, but also the device manufacturers, yeah. right? So like, you know, Apple are really like well positioned. I mean, I think the challenge there is that there is no, you want something that works mm. on a consistent basis, yeah. right? And, you know, saying, okay, well, Apple Pay will solve it. Well, that only like so, like helps you for what, 30, 40% of your customer base? Yeah, Simon's um, not happy so, with that. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's, it, it doesn't quite work, but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, move. We, of course, um, Historically, merchant uh, merchants have struggled with dropout at checkout. Like the the dropout is is phenomenal once you get to those last few pages, uh, and really kind of increasing that conversion has been a, a crucial point for merchants in, in the online e commerce space. You know, do we think what can merchants do to prepare, and can banks help them with this? And you know, what would you do if you're a merchant selling things on your little Shopify website? Well, the Shopify website is actually the the good counter where Shopify is in a great position to like build into the platform a pretty good solution. And, you know, hopefully they're going to invest there. Um, I think there's a lot of people who've like semi, semi DIY'd and it's, it's increasing the depth of kind of the payment provider stack. Mm-hmm. It's increasing the barrier of entry to that industry, like Stripes to go and be a Stripe competitor. The number of things you need to do now is becoming really large. And I find it interesting the role that Stripe's playing in kind of providing a reference implementation for a piece of regulation that, you know, who knows if anyone really knew how this thing should or would be implemented at the time that they set the regulation. They're like, ah, Stripe will figure out how to like make a reference implementation and then everyone else will copy that. And that's almost certainly what's going to happen. Indeed, and we, uh, we see people like kind of falling back to relying on SMS, and we know SMS increasingly with um, smishing Crazy. has been not secure and, and actually a major uh, issue for, for a lot of organizations. So using SMS as two-factor is probably um, going to introduce a lot of fraud rather than uh, rather than reduce it. So hopefully people can take advantage of it. Alrighty, next story. Um, it comes from Yahoo Finance. Uh, second story from Yahoo Finance today. Robin Hood have applied for a national bank charter in a bid to form a new challenger bank. Um, 
Mobile stock trading app Robinhood is seeking their national bank charter with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC. Yeah, you know me. Um, if <laughs> Couldn't help it. Every time. If the company receives its bank charter, besides providing securities trading, it could also roll out banking services as a subsidiary. And last year, Robinhood planned to offer a checking and savings account backed by the Securities Investor Protection Corp. However, the SIPC said it would only secure funds for securities purchases, not cash deposits which caused Robinhood to re, uh, redact its plans. Uh, currently, Robinhood's cash management features are said to be coming soon. Um, how significant is this, David? In the, uh, or in fact, Chris, in the US market, you know, Robinhood is, have been a, a massive growth story, but uh, Chime are there, but there aren't really many other big challenger banks. These guys have got a brand. Maybe they could do something. Yeah. Um, in the US, financial services products aren't terribly differentiated. And where they do, they tend to do it on rewards. Uh, millennials are looking for new products, new products with different brands, flashy cards. Like um, This is what Venmo is doing. This is what Square Cash has been particularly successful with doing. Um, I really admire their card product. I, I think Robinhood could potentially be really successful uh, if they go deeper into that what does a financial services product built for the ground up for a different generation than many of the ones that have been built and kind of existed for the last 30, 40 years? And they've got 4.5 million users. They're already a unicorn. This is this is not a sort of a, a startup startup. It's a scale-up ready to launch into this, which has got experience working with financial services. It's it's an interesting leap between these two things, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, you know, we're gonna do a current account, then savings, then maybe, you know, like it's like stocks and a current account like Mm. that's quite a big so it's going to be really interesting to see how they integrate these two things together to make that a not a jarring experience for it's like hey you've got like 15 bucks left at the end of the month like put it in some stocks type five you know i think there's really only two things that matter trust and aspiration Mm -hmm. and they definitely have trust um i think venmo really has aspiration and that's where i'm excited for them to go and build something differentiated there if robin hood has aspiration as well and I'm, i'm not familiar enough with kind of the public uh, perception of their brand uh, it, i do think it could be super interesting is it these guys growing up you know we you know we talked a little bit about beachheads with tide earlier on is this uh, companies like robin hood getting to the point where they've done something so successful now that it's like we'll reinvo- reinvest the profit that they're making from the other thing and you know start making the business bigger and bigger this is essentially the model that we saw with you know the banks 350 years ago right <laughs> it's like do something successful and then do more stuff Look, I think it's another example of the trends where, you know, if we were having this conversation kind of three or five years ago, it was about the fintechs were taking like a customer journey to use the kind of language of the time and being really like laser focused and making something much better. And in the last kind of 12 months, you're seeing all of those who've done that just currently expanding, right? Whether that's because, frankly, it's really hard to be profitable long term with one product or because, you know, there's a reason why banks do more than one thing and they were created and the business model evolved and so you're kind of converging back there. Mm. But there's something interesting about doing one thing extremely well for growth um, because if you do that one thing extremely well, you're able to get uh, JRS curve growth in a way that doing all things for all people seems confusing. You confuse the marketplace, you confuse the users. I mean, if you take Stripe, for instance, or any of these organizations, they started somewhere with a really clear beachhead 
But, I mean, Stripe's a little bit different because there's a lot of use cases even for that one thing. But still, they start with one thing and then they gradually add over time. And this is this feels like the extension of that trend. Yeah, I think it, well, it depends on what you call your company, right? TransferWise have struggled with this because they kind of name themselves Transfer for something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so like, you know, being able to kind of do that afterwards feels like an afterthought. Lending-wise. Exactly, yeah. Rather than like, you know, it being the beachhead for the company that you want to build, which is, you know, universal banking didn't start on the premise of just like, hey, we're going to do like 50 different products and be in this space. But actually, that's how it evolved because the big banks were successful. I'm sure the bankers weren't thinking about collateralized debt obligations. I mean, probably not yeah. back in those <laughs> days, but, you know, like it just came to them after a while. Didn't it? Yeah, and indeed. All right. Uh, next story. Um, T-Mobile's take on two digital banking. Um, T-Mobile takes on US banks with their own checking account. Um, following a soft launch late last year, the no fee interest earning mobile first T-Mobile Money account is now available nationwide. The account has FDIC-insured protection thanks to a partnership with Bank Mobile, um, the uh, digital-only arm of Customers Bank. Uh, the launch comes just two years after T-Mobile shut down its previous effort to shake up US banking with a similar product aimed at the underbanked. Customers get a MasterCard debit card, money management tools, mobile check deposits, peer-to-peer transfers, the ability to pay with Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay. Uh, T-Mobile's convinced there's an opportunity to disrupt the industry, citing the fact that 7 out of 10 Americans now bank digitally, but just 13% of the traditional providers believe their core systems can keep up with the pace Hmm. of innovation. That last stat stands all by itself, doesn't it? That's that's huge. Um, what do we think about mobile operators? There was sort of 10, 15 years ago, they were going to be the disruptors. They were going to own the space. And actually, they got disrupted themselves. Google and Apple came in and just ate their lunch. I think it was, you know, everybody thought mobile was going to be the thing for like 15 years. To, and then it was, and then it wasn't the MNOs who were really controlling it. So yeah. it was, it's interesting that they haven't had the crack, but I'm not sure the US market is where that will sort of take off. You know, we have seen MNOs be super, super successful in other places. And probably it's interesting that they've had another year to kind of step back and have a, another run at it though. So I wonder what they're doing fundamentally different this time to make it successful. Or do they just think the market's moved on enough that actually we like this this didn't suck guys we were just early okay this didn't suck we were just early <laughs> that sounds like we're gonna come back. they're never wrong they're just early. yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's a good old investor parable um but they're apparently using more than experience to win people over they're offering eligible uncarrier customers a four percent uh annual percentage yield on balances of up to three thousand dollars which is 50 times more than the average checking account so they're buying customers i mean that'll do it yeah yeah <laughs> this is this is more like the old um market entry sample and airplay where you get the the one two three account and you just you just go buy customers but you do it really simple you execute and you focus on that but my question i think what you're alluding to is you know what's happening beneath the surface here what's the tech stack what's the what's the execution path because partnering with bank mobile you've got to think bank mobile are going to want to be making some money off of this well well, like i say i think the mno stuff made sense when the you know the technology was moving towards like closed chips and you know yeah. having access to nfc and the all SIM these card things was going to be the nfc yeah. wasn't it yeah um but now where it's predominantly software based and i'm not really sure what the mno really gives you over and above actually another company in it unless it's a just a trusted brand in this space that people kind of relate to you know i mean for me that's the question what's a right to win when someone comes in it's a busy marketplace easy you've come and you do something better i don't feel and again i don't live in the u.s but in the uk yeah, you can, people have feelings or attachments. Did you have an Apple and Android for your device? You might have, but like the operating network I'm on, or 
in your other network. Go, I'm not going you know. back to ask the conversation. It, the hardware guys have an advantage mm-hmm. because if you're talking about multi-factor authentication you, and different journeys, hardware effectively hardware journeys, they have an advantage because they can they can create uniqueness. Yeah, but the actual carriers, I don't, I don't, I agree. And I, I don't see the uniqueness here. Well, to, to your point, just a brand you care about, right? You know, this is like I like I'm with EE. I have literally no feelings towards them at all. Like there's, there's not that brand that it's, it's a commodity, with. isn't it? It's a commodity service rather than a, a value, a product I value. And I think um, it feels like the leaflets you see at a supermarket checkout. It's like a thing that you could get, <laughs> but it's what, like, yes, you can buy customers. Yes, it feels like a good offer, but why would I use this every day? Why would I come back to it once the introductory offer's gone? I don't know where the sustainability is here. I don't know what this gives me where I'm like, oh my God, yeah, you know what? My friend told me this was awesome. I've got to have this thing. De- definitely don't not buying customers you know it's a smart yeah. move if you can get them but it's whether you're, you're buying the type of customers that as soon as there's another offer somewhere else that's doing it then you lose them and you know i'm a big fan of markets that's, that's yeah. why they do it uh, so like i i actually do see a right to win here which is their industry has lost a property it had five to ten years ago which was a carrier customer was a customer for 20 years on average the banking industry is an industry that still has that, particularly in the US. People don't change their bank very often. It's actually nowhere near as easy in the US as it is in the UK. And in the UK, I think if People the stats are still right, you're more likely to get divorced than to have changed <laughs> your current account. Precisely. And so I see here the question is how much is restoring that 20-year customer life versus that two to three-year customer lifetime that they've got today worth to them? And the answer is a lot. And so I do think that they can actually afford to outpay a lot of people and they can build a pretty interesting differentiated product just by spending because they can afford to. But, but then I, I, think I think it's a super interesting strategy. They need to find a way where, you know, I guess before 10, 15 years ago, part of the reason I remember when we're looking at this in a different um, world is that there was a much stronger relationship between like the carrier and the device, right? Yeah. Because it was subsidized probably more. The devices were cheaper. They were like branded, some of them. You had exclusivity. And if you wanted a new Motorola, you had to go with you know, whoever one. it was. Yeah. yeah, but you kind of don't have that now. So either they need to get it back, or if it's the previous conversation on authentication, do they have a role to play with whatever kind of mm. Wi-Fi provider? You know, they've got to find a way yeah. that their core business somehow helps you somewhere. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see if we see more of the to a point around sort of subsidizing growth, essentially, to almost like disrupt a revenue model within an industry that you're not in. You know, arguably, this is what we're seeing uh, Goldman Sachs do with the partnership with with Apple, you know, coming into a market that they're, they're not really uh, in. They're in banking, but they're not in retail banking. So being able to come in and disrupt that market, if these guys can come in and disrupt it, because they're not and really, like, you know, the organizations we work with, usually the hardest thing to let go, uh, you know, the drug that's really hard to get off is like the revenue model that you've got currently. Yeah. Um, so if you can come into a market and disrupt the thing that everybody else holds sacred, then that might be an interesting. I think we talked ourselves around there, didn't we? I, I think, I, think I said it was a bad idea. <laughs> but, and now... but my question is not, do they have brand permission or could they build the customer relationship? My question is, could they execute? Mm. Like, I, I doubt their ability to execute. And that's just because I've seen so many telcos do this and fail unless it's been in emerging markets in which case you know across africa across southeast asia then the telcos win because there was no other choice they are the banking and they have a relationship like you probably care about who lets you run your entire life and they quite often the identifier and i think this is the issue in emerging markets the mobile phone number is quite often the person identifier Interesting, and I think that that gives them a really a big advantage. And I yeah. think that is one of the that is one of the areas that the, these carriers may have. They do have the mobile phone number, 
and they can use that in uh, as an identifier. In identifying you. Like, it's important not to be complacent, right? They may they may know a lot more than you can read from the outside, and oh, they may have sort of much more clever way than you know you can conjure up. Uh, time will tell, right? and they're about to know um, a lot more because if you think about every carrier's number two business is selling data, selling customer data. Who has way more customer data than anyone else? The person who sees every credit card charge you run. I, I think there's a really interesting, if not like a little bit conspiracy theorist, but like long-term data play for them in terms of the data business. Although that they can build we foster. saw um, since trial pay and many others, people have been trying to get the sell consumer data for banks piece right forever and it's yet to really take off um so we'll, we'll see if uh you know consumer opinion around cambridge analytica was bad enough if they got there with banking data i don't know that could be that's a scandal waiting to happen but who knows um i'm going to move us to our and finally story this week um comes from walt.de apparently germans hoard more gold than the bundesbank themselves um the germans love for gold is well known um really wanted to do i know it's austin powers yeah, yeah. I, really I, I felt you wanted to do that thing yeah uh, the Bundesbank holds holds as much gold as almost no other central bank in the world with 3,370 tons. Uh, only the U.S. guards um, an even bigger treasure in the cellars of Fort Knox, um, around 8,000 tons. <coughs> Germany's citizens actually have more gold than the Bundesbank and even more than the U.S. Federal Reserve. Over the past three years, holdings in coffers and safes in Germany have risen significantly and German citizens also want to buy more gold in the coming years. In total, private individuals in Germany own more than 8,900 tons of gold. A lot of gold. Is this, is this like, is this in bars or is it just like yeah, fancy jewelry? Yeah, this is like physical gold in safes. Oh, okay. Coins, oh, okay. Coins, I think, is a big form of this. Really? Wow. But, but Germany's a very different market. You know, they, they love tangible wealth. They love savings. It's not a heavy indebted market. I guess this is just an extension of that. And of course, um, German Or a reflection of their sentiment of the euro currency, right? Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there's that too. Single-handedly stacking up a currency could be <laughs> just in bad, case. They've had bad, you know... They've had bad times a long, long time ago with their currency, so... Very true. That's a good point. Some long memories already. Um, I, I think I'm disappointed by that. Like, I, I wanted to believe that this was like they had some sort of, like, Four Chains vibe going on. Yeah. You know I mean? like, <laughs> like, sort of almost like Mr. T was back in I, I Berlin. A fool like, that tries to steal yeah, German gold. Ex- and I think that's where we should end. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Episode name. <laughs> uh, that wraps up this week's news show with a friendly pun featuring Mr. T. Uh, thank you very much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Hiroki? Um, Twitter, I guess. Hiroki Takeuchi, at Hiroki Takeuchi. Thank you very much. Uh, what about you, yourself, Niall? Uh, LinkedIn always. All righty. It's a lunch? Uh, LinkedIn's only one of me with that name. There you go. Uh, and what about yourself, Chris? Uh, at Chris Madden on Twitter or at Button on Twitter. Button, that's a great handle. Well done. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you the story later. That, whoa, there's one for. We should do like a, a fintech insider special story for after we keep rolling. Yeah, this I mean, one's... I mean, just keep recording, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> we, we might. And get now that they've one. told me. <laughs> oh, damn it. Uh, what about yourself, David? Uh, at David Brewer over on Twitter and at S Y Taylor on Twitter is how you can get hold of me. Uh, what did you think of today's stories, listeners? Let us know on Twitter at fintech insiders or email podcasts at eleven fs dot com. And don't forget, if you love the show, leave us a review already. 
thanks to those that have done so already. We we do read them. David always reads out loud in I the office. I read as well. them all very loudly. But you also read all of your emails out loud. So it's basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's saying something about my IQ. I think <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I will read out loud. Um, find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Periscope for much more content, including FinTech Insider on air and our brand new show, Home Screen. Check it out. Thank you very much for listening, and bye for now. Thank you.